Amen. Thank you, choir and Dan, instrumentalists. It's wonderful to worship together this morning. You know, I'd only been serving at this church a day or two when I discovered that a certain unnamed staff member enjoys intentionally calling other ministers on staff by something other than their real name. So for example, if you're Dan Baker, you might be Don Barker. And if you're Trevor, you might suddenly be Travis. Well, even the first several days, I'm sitting in my office and new folks are coming in, uh, stopping by the office, doing ordinary things, and, and this particular staff member thought it would be uh, prudent to in- introduce them to the new associate pastor. So she'd bring them to my door and, and p- poke her head in and say something like, have you met Travis? All these poor people keep getting introduced to Travis. And this is all well and good until it gets said enough to cause the wrong people confusion. And the next thing you know, the pastor stands up on Wednesday night's Bible study and invites Travis to come and preach. (laughs) I should have just sat there and see if any Travises in the room wanted to give it a shot. And now I'm sure you'll all be good and confused because I've gone back and forth between the word Trevor and Travis multiple times now, but I'm Trevor. (laughs) You know, nicknames can stick. You start calling somebody by the wrong name and you never know who's going to know what, even if they're the wrong name. And it's unfortunate if for decade after decade you've been called Doubting Thomas or Thomas the Doubter. You know, Doubting Thomas even gets its own Wikipedia page. I mean, even Judas gets to go by his real name on Wikipedia. But not Thomas. He can't seem to shake this whole doubting thing. I mean, there's other scenes in the Gospels where we meet and are introduced to Thomas. But this one seems to stand out. This one seems to take over all the rest of them. Well, today's episode with Thomas comes one week after the Easter story. And there aren't many stories like it in the Gospels that tell us uh, what it means to be a disciple one week after Jesus is resurrected. I mean, Mark is in such a hurry that he wraps things up with the empty tomb and moves on. Matthew adds a few lines about Jesus appearing to the disciples in Galilee and, and a really important commission Last week we heard a story from Luke, a great story about Jesus appearing to two men on the road to Emmaus. But this all happens the day Jesus is resurrected. And the next thing you know, he's gone, carried up into heaven and out of their sight. John is the only gospel who lingers around long enough to remind us what it's like to follow Jesus one week later. And when we find these disciples a week later... Where are they? Well, the text tells us that they were huddled again in the safety and security of the house. A week after all the confusion and chaos of Jesus' death and the resurrection, and, and not much has changed. They're all right where we found them the day the news of the empty tomb first broke. Well, everyone, that is, except for Thomas. He was the missing disciple when this all starts. You know, missing Thomas, that sounds a little bit better than doubting Thomas. He should have gone with that one. He might have even settled for Travis. (laughs) At the outset of our text, 
in verse 19, it tells us the disciples were huddled together for the first time. Just as they had been on the Sabbath, only now the room was filled with fear and confusion instead of sadness and despair. Instead of asking, what should we do now? The disciples are sitting around asking, can it be true? And somewhere in all the chaos, hope is trying to work its way into the room and into their minds, but most of the disciples were giving in to fear. So they do what we all do. They close up the doors. They get behind safe walls. They seek out protection and confinement and insulation as best they can. Fear has a way of doing that, doesn't it? It drives us inward. It sends us spiraling into self-preservation and a search for security. We get afraid and our focus turns inward. When we feel threatened or insecure, we start making sure the lines that separate us and them or them from us are all the more clear. And the text tells us that their fear was because of the Jewish leaders. We're told that fear of the Jewish leaders led them to the safety of this space. Because if Jesus' body was gone, then the high priest's henchmen were going to be out looking for it. And the first place they would look would be where? Right here in the middle of Jesus' closest friends and followers. And if he had caused enough stir to be put to death, and now he's missing, what are they going to want to do with us? Are we next, they're thinking? Well, beyond the Jewish leaders, these disciples had plenty of other people to fear too. I mean, think about it. Everyone that they know knows that they gave up just about everything to follow this teacher. Everyone they know, everyone they walked away from, every responsibility they dumped on somebody else, everybody they'd left hanging on agreements they already had to ditch their daily work and follow Jesus knows And so it probably made it all the more convenient to make sure as they huddled in that locked room that the deadbolt was shut tight. And between the fear and uncertainty of how the outside world might react and and the fear of who might be interested in, in breaking in, the disciples sit huddled behind locked doors. And suddenly all the stirring slowed and, and the whispers got quieter and quieter and someone gasped. And a familiar voice speaks from the middle of the room. Now you might assume that it would be nothing but relief when the text tells us that Jesus suddenly standing among them. But some of the fear could have been aimed at him. After all, if he was alive, as the women kept insisting only days before, if he was alive like they'd heard he was, he probably has a thing or two to say about the way all of them had abandoned him. Guilt and shame at their own failure might have given some of the disciples a reason to fear a rebuke from the teacher when he shows up. After all, they'd promised to follow him no matter what. And here they are sitting in this room together, but none of their mistakes or problems, none of these safe walls that they've hidden behind or the the locked doors that they double-checked, none of it's enough to keep Jesus from coming in. It's what he does. Jesus shows up in the places where we'd rather be left alone. He, He refuses to let sin and death have the last word. 
Jesus shows up in the places where we'd rather divide up the world and every place that we quite like the walls and the ways that we've marked them out. And all the ways that we're more comfortable with a society segmented or divided up or polarized. And he offers a different word, a better way. And the word he offers to them first is peace. Twice he greets them with this pronouncement of peace, echoing his own words in John 14, 27, when he says, my peace I give to you, my peace I live, leave with you. I don't give as the world gives. Do not be afraid. And he echoes this word of peace as he greets them by saying, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And as he says this, he breathes on them and invites them to receive the Holy Spirit. In the midst of all of this, the text tells us that their fear suddenly turns to rejoicing. Before they had seen him, all they'd been able to see was the end of them. That locked up house was the end of the line for them, the end of the vision that they'd walked away from every other vision for their life in order to follow. They had the breath knocked right out of them, the life. They couldn't even remember how to breathe. You know what it's like to struggle for breath? Maybe you've had the, the wind knocked out of you, or you've come up from underneath the water gasping for air, or, or maybe you've struggled to breathe for some other reason. Jesus knows that before they can hear or do anything else, these disciples need to breathe. And so the one who first created order out of chaos now breathes peace into their chaos-filled upper room, hope into their world of uncertainty. You know, the word for wind and breath and spirit is the same Greek word in the New Testament, translated different ways. The same for the Old Testament Hebrew. The scriptures teach us that God breathes over the water and the universe takes form. God proclaims to a valley of bones through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37, 5, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. And the psalmists declare, let everything that breathes praise God. And just as God had breathed his life, the breath of life into the dust of the earth and humankind came to life, Jesus now breathes his life into this room. And John makes a point to remind us several times in chapter 20 that this is the first day of the week. Again and again, he's reminding us on the first day of the week, Jesus rises. And again, on the first day of the week, the disciples are gathered in the upper room. He's reminding us that this is the beginning of something entirely new. A new wind is blowing through the world and through it, God is recreating everything. The same breath that caused life to come up from the dust is supposed to cause life to come through these disciples. Now, all of that, and Thomas wasn't there. I think Missing Thomas might have been a better nickname. Now, maybe he was out comforting others or, or looking for supplies for the other disciples. 
Maybe he had things to deal with at home or an emergency had come up that he had to, to go take care of. He may have been chasing children around or maybe he was comforting others who were disturbed by the events that had taken place. Oftentimes this is interpreted that, that maybe he had completely lost faith. He'd given up and moved on. But that seems unlikely because he shows right back up again. He hasn't ditched everybody for good. But wherever he is, he's definitely in distress. I like to picture the disciples sitting around arguing over who has to call in dinner and who has to go pick it up. Somebody volunteers to call it in and Thomas draws a short straw and has to go pick it up for everybody. And having said that, can we all agree that Thomas picked a rather unfortunate time to go out for pizza? And the disciples, they, they try to fill him in, but he isn't having it. And so the traditional reading of this text faults him for this, that he's really asking for too much. But I read him asking for nothing more than what all the other disciples had already experienced. In the usual interpretation of this story, his problem is that he needed physical proof that God had raised Jesus from the dead. He was the holdout, the agnostic, the guy who, who wouldn't take anyone else's word for anything. He wanted to weigh the evidence for himself. And unless he was able to do that, Thomas says, he would not believe. Well, on January 1st, 1929, the Cal Golden Bears played the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. Midway through the second quarter, the game was still as close as it could be, and a fumble happened. A memorable fumble because Roy Regals scoops it up. He was a two-way player, both offense and defense, but in this play, he's playing something like a middle linebacker when he scoops up the Georgia Tech fumble just 30 yards away from a touchdown. And in the midst of, of picking it up and bumping it into a few players, he loses his bearings and ends up running 69 yards in the wrong direction. I was running toward the sidelines when I picked up the ball, Regals told the press. I started to run toward my left, toward Tech's goal, but somebody shoved me and I bounded right off into a tackler and pivoting to get away from him, I completely lost my bearings. Well, the team's quarterback, known for, for his speed, managed to chase him down. Trying to turn him around at the three-yard line, he was unsuccessful, and the players all chasing him from the other team, he was tackled on the wrong one-yard line. The events led the Cal Bears to have to punt. Georgia Tech blocked their punts, two points for a safety as a result of Roy Regals running the wrong way. It would be the difference in the game between winning and losing. His wrong way run in the 1929 Rose Bowl is often cited as the worst blunder in the history of college football. According to one article, there were approximately, count them, 4,500 stories written in newspapers across the United States, totaling an estimated 250,000 column inches written about Regal's wrong way run in the newspaper. Wrong Way Roy, he was called, a nickname that would stick to him for a lifetime. Which is unfortunate because Roy Regals was the captain of that football team. In that season, he was named an NCAA All-American, 
His own coach is quoted as saying he was the smartest player I ever coached. One blunder. And next thing you know, he's known for the rest of his life as Wrong Way Roy. Well, for centuries, Thomas hasn't been able to shake the nickname he gets for supposedly being a skeptic. He makes one demand and his whole identity gets marked with the word doubter, as if that was such an uncommon thing, as if none of the other disciples ever had their doubts, as they were locked for fear of the Jews in the upper room, as if none of us are supposed to have any of our own doubts or questions. But listen to what he says, what he actually wants. Unless I see the mark of the nails on his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails on his side, I will not believe. It's the wounds that Thomas wants to see, not just the face. He wants to touch the places where the Jesus he knew so well had been so hurt, where the spear went into his side even after he was dead. Is Thomas having problems believing that Jesus is risen, or is he wanting to know something else? I mean, he doesn't argue with the disciples about whether or not they've seen Jesus. He doesn't directly dispute that Jesus is risen. What he wants to see are the wounds. But he's missing Thomas. He wasn't there. And so he'll have to sit in the middle of those questions for days. A whole week, the scriptures tell us. I bet the other disciples came and went They went on with their lives for that week. They did their daily chores. Maybe they started getting back to work or refinding the jobs that they'd left behind to follow Jesus. I see them taking care of the things that need to be taken care of, leaving the room and coming back to it to see each other again. But my bet is Thomas was glued to a chair all week, thinking to himself, if this happens again, there's no way I'm missing it. Now, did you notice that Jesus showed up twice in a row on Sunday night? Sunday night worship is at 6 p.m. Miss at your own risk. And then one week later, John sets the scene almost identically. Except, of course, that Thomas is with him this time. And Thomas gets a tough tough reputation from the story, but the ten disciples who have already seen Jesus have already been sent by Jesus are right where he left them. Their safe walls are still there. The door is still locked. And after all the commotion and all the rejoicing that we heard a week ago, it seems like one week later, nothing much has changed. That's a real temptation, isn't it? We can pack the place out and rejoice that Jesus lives, but we get a little uncomfortable if we have to start talking about what that might require of us. We want to talk about Jesus' life rising from the grave and then move on with ours. And here they are in the same place we left them, and you can still hear Jesus' words lingering in the locked room as the Father sent me. So I send you. As the Father is easy to hear, but we struggle sometimes with the 
so I send you part. Theologian Miroslav Volf says that Christian practices have what we may call an as-so structure. As God has received us in Christ, so we are to receive our fellow human beings. We must say, as Christ, so we. In the world, I wonder if all they knew of Jesus' sentness was how we were sent what they think about Jesus' ascending. If the world took only the colors we gave them by our mission and painted a picture of Jesus' mission, would they have the full composition of the gospel? Would they see sent disciples living out a full picture of what God has called us to live? When the gospels say it, as the Father is compassionate, so you must be compassionate. As you have been forgiven, so you must forgive. And Paul echoes this same structure over and over again. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, as God has called each, so let each walk. In Romans 6, 4, he says, as Christ was raised from the dead, so we might also live anew. In Romans 15, as Christ accepted us, so we should accept one another. In Colossians 2, 6, as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, so walk in him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 49, as we have worn the likeness of the man of the dust, so shall we wear the likeness of the heavenly man. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Go in the same way. One week later, the as-so structure of imitating Jesus is already breaking down. But Jesus shows up again. It's what he does. And after greeting them, Jesus addresses Thomas, and he addresses and invites him to carry out the tests that he demanded to carry out, to put his finger in the nail prints in his hands and his hand in his side. Do not be unbelieving, he tells Thomas, but believing. And many translations use the word doubt here, and Thomas gets that eternal nickname from it, but it's literally the negation of faith, the opposite of faith, better translated, unbelief. Doubt in English speaks of questions and uncertainty, but Jesus isn't upset about your questions or your curiosity. What he addresses here is unbelief. And with this invitation, Jesus shows Thomas that his doubts are okay, and he can handle every one of your doubts too. Thomas's questions aren't the problem. Jesus knows every single one of them before he shows up. Nobody has to inform Jesus what Thomas was doubting about or what his questions were. Jesus comes and he knows them, and he can handle every one of yours too. Well, some think that Thomas, upon invitation, actually touches Jesus' hands and and sticks his hand in Jesus' side, investigates and probes the body of the risen Lord. For centuries, artists have depicted this in in paintings, the most famous of which, painted by Caravaggio in the fifth century, is titled The Incredulity of Thomas. It pictures an inquisitive Thomas leaning closely to the body of Jesus with his, his hand deep in the wounds of Jesus, feeling for himself, seeing, touching for himself the body of Jesus. 
But John doesn't say anything about this. In fact, Jesus notes that Thomas believes because he's seen. He doesn't say, you have believed because you touched. He doesn't even need to carry out the test. The sight of Jesus and his wounds seems to be enough. Thomas may not even have walked across the room. All he had to do was see. So was this doubt really all about not knowing Jesus was risen? Or is he looking for something specific? After all, Thomas didn't ask for proof that Jesus was alive. He wanted to see the wounds of the risen Jesus. Maybe he needs to see for himself that the risen one is the same one who died. That he hasn't come back all good as new and cleaned up and that his body has a story to tell. That the marks on him that, Je- that Thomas saw on Jesus on the cross are still there. They're the marks that unmask all the powers of the world for what they are. That this is what happens when true humanity is in the midst of the world, it gets crushed. And that's what Jesus has brought back to life. Not magically made it all go away, but resurrected that crushed, broken body. Thomas sees the wounds and immediately believes. Because he's struck by the reality that this isn't a ghost. This isn't some fleeting phantom. The one that God has raised up is the same one who was damaged beyond repair. He is looking for evidence that this Messiah knows everything there is to know about the worst kind of breathlessness. And he will never overlook his. If this isn't the same Lord he saw marred beyond recognition, then what is Thomas supposed to believe? That Jesus' new life has nothing to do with this old one? Are the troubles of the world just a a passing illusion and and Jesus' death had nothing to say about Thomas' life now? When he sees the marks on Jesus' body, Thomas cannot help but believe that Jesus' resurrection and his resurrected life means something for his life and for every life. He can see that no matter how hurt or scarred we might be, Jesus has new life for that too. He's discovered that for himself, there is no amount of sin that Jesus cannot overcome and there's no amount of death that Jesus can't undo. Easter isn't over. God has brought new life into the world and he offers it now to you and to anyone who would believe. And through you, he intends to offer that new life to the world. His body bears these marks as evidence that the brokenness and despair that you and me and all of creation brings to the table is never more than the new life of Jesus can handle. Thomas sees and knows if this Lord can bring life from there, then surely he is God. And so Thomas gives us the most adequate confession of who Jesus is in all of John's gospel. My Lord and my God. Jesus receives a lot of titles in the gospel. He's called Rabbi and Messiah, Prophet, King of Israel, Son of God. Mary and the disciples hail him as Lord after the resurrection. 
But it's Thomas who makes it clear that this God, this Jesus, can be addressed in the same language that the Old Testament used for God, for Yahweh. John began this gospel proclaiming, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this gospel's wrapping up now with this chosen disciple affirming, He is God. And so here we sit, one week later, one week after Easter. The candy is on clearance. The aisles are wiped clean. The decorations you've got can go back in the box. Pack it up and move on. And if things get tough, just retreat back to that useless room and lock yourself in where it felt safer and the world was kept at a distance. Or, or, Join Thomas today and every day in responding to Jesus with the confession that he deserves, my Lord and my God. And as you do, hear Jesus speaking back to you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Let's pray together. God, we come as people, as humans, as frail, fearful people. One week after we've celebrated that you've risen from the grave. And God, for every way that we fail to embody the new life that you've shown us and offered to us, if we would believe, God, for every way that we've locked ourselves up and failed to be sent as you were sent, God, we ask for forgiveness. But this morning we also know that none of our doubts and questions or failures are too much for you to bring back to life. And so, God, we ask, we need that new breath from heaven. We pray you would give it to us and that as we receive it, we would go in your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John's passage here concludes by saying that Jesus did many other signs in the, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. The invitation this morning is to come and to receive that new life that Jesus offers to anyone who would believe. Or maybe you're looking for a community of people searching and seeking to live out that life together. We'd invite you to come and to be a part of the family at First Baptist Church. Let's stand together as we respond. We'll be here at the front as we sing hymn 481. Come just as you are.